You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Dr. Sue Thomas, Fashion Ethics. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, look, I, I love this. I love this chat. So, you know, fashion is kind of one of those areas where I think, you know, what, what um, Sue really kind of um, talks a lot about and she's done her PhD and she's read, written a book and she's done a TED talk on, on this subject matter. But even, you know, kind of me slipping up halfway through kind of talking about kind of this notion of consumption versus um, being a customer and having Sue kind of, you know, unpack that and think, talk to us about the, the difference in terms of, consumption being this river of goods that you just kind of pick from whereas being a customer actually implies selection and kind of you know the responsibility of us all to become better customers of these brands i thought was really really um an interesting point because we don't often look at the community that actually is sitting behind making these garments or actually standing behind these brands do we pat no we really don't and she really puts that earnest back on the customer the consumer um rather than putting it all on the producer and I think that's that's a really important point to make and it is one that a lot of people are starting to cotton on to because really the dollar sign and choice and and everything a consumer makes dictates the future and that is one of the first lines within her book that you'll get to hear from Sue and I think the way she she frames up the challenge that is in front of us all as we as we buy garments to clothe our body and make ourselves feel a certain way is something that we should all confront and she gives a good framework to how to do that yeah yeah and you know the the part that also kind of really stuck out to me i think you know that she actually takes us through is that how so much of this actually comes into the design process itself so kind of as as people kind of designing and on one side and then also kind of people who are actually customers of these brands on the other it's actually kind of what can we actually do to you know really support the community that's actually making um making these products and and doing that in a way that actually recognizes that you know we're all in this together for one and also the fact that kind of you know that um, we live on one planet that has a finite amount of resources. So it was a tremendous chat and really, really was. Hi, um, I am Sue Thomas. Um, This morning you find me located in Galashiels on the borders or in the borders of Scotland. And I am currently um, an academic, uh, author, broadcaster and consultant in the area of fashion ethics. Beautiful. Now, fashion ethics is is a big title, and it's the title of a book that you chose to write back in 2018 um, with one of the opening lines, the future is defined or determined every time we make a decision, both personally and professionally. I love that, um, but I want to know what made you write the book and what did you hope to get from writing that book or to, to produce from writing that book? Well, the short answer, it's an, it was an exorcism, um, basically, because um, this has been burgeoning within me for ages. Um, I'm a long-time academic, um, work, having worked in Australia and New Zealand, uh, but born in England, um, back now working in Scotland. But the book came as a result of um, a PhD that I started way, way back in the day, around 2003, something like that, when I was living and working in Australia in Melbourne 
um, I found myself in a teaching situation and a student said to me, um, oh, but I love fashion and I hate the industry. And I found myself just about to go into a patronizing, oh, well, you know, this is how it is. And I realized I was the problem. I was letting things go. I wasn't challenging things. So I changed my PhD subject. And a long time later, because I write slowly and I was working full time, I finished the PhD. But still, the questions and the information and the, I suppose, headspace was still rambling, uh, not rambling, roiling, as they say in romantic novels, roiling inside my head, what, how. And to me, it seemed that, that things hadn't been named. And when people talk about... Um, fashion and ethics which they weren't doing to be honest to begin with um they tended to do it basically as a sort of two button issue when i'm teaching this i i literally have an image of the two buttons um and it's basically the environment is one button and probably child labor is the other one and everything else is well the other that's it and it was driving me crackers so um because it seemed to me there was a much bigger set of issues which you know just for people who like countings around 13 at the moment um and a lot of people miss stuff out um so they can be making something which is environmentally sound but if you're making just at this very basic level a t-shirt which contains stolen or appropriated cultural imagery your garment's not ethical it's still um cultural appropriation um so it's these sorts of things besides i'm afraid listing things uh sexism racism ageism sizeism hope that wasn't too fast um uh, all these things and more come in as part of ethics and i started the book basically to i suppose as i said earlier exercise this to get it out there and um i as i was writing it i was also as you do when you write, you're polishing your ideas, you're seeing connections. And again, that's sort of part of my creative process, the seeing the connections. And I continue to do so, but you know, not currently in book form. And so, um, so Sue, the, the, I guess, you know, the, what really kind of strikes me about all of that is really this kind of concept of, of ethic and, you know, kind of actually how far stretched that actually goes. And when you kind of, when you think about the kind of the, the, really the kind of, I guess, what, what fashion and the fashion industry is actually going through at the moment, I mean, why do you think it's, it's so focused on those top two buttons and doesn't really look at the other 11 that follow? I think because, to be honest, the discourse is, is kind of happening, um, at various levels and they're not fully connecting yet. Um, seems to me there is a lot of, um, well, it started off as very superficial, you know, general populist articles in um, magazines, newspapers, you know, there's a bit of a lull, they would cover it. Um, and now it is some, you know, further deeper and some informed. Um, but there, and also at the other end, you know, from um, experience of teaching, there is um um, a bunch, you know, a generation, possibly if we're lucky, two generations of, of uh, designers, industry professionals who are aware of this and are trying to do things. But it's about joining up all the um, points, as far as I'm concerned, to make a solid real change. What does that real change look like? Wow. Well, if you're going to do it, I mean, the thing is what I'm teaching, and again, you know, the examples I use, a lot of people are put off by the size of it because, you know, you're going really from, con uh, as I visualize it, uh, from concept conceptual 
aspects. So the designer, what they're thinking at the time. And the scary thing is, um, you know, I think it's European research says that approximately, I think it's 80% of the impact, environmental impact of a garment is decided um, or actually a product is decided in the design stage. Um, and it goes all the way around to repurposing or um, reusing what has been made. And um, that all, all of those things can be actually decided at that point, at that very beginning point of um, the conceptualization. So those points all come together. So when you're thinking about it, as I say, because it sometimes appears too big, I don't think it actually is. But um, I say, you know, it's a bit like eating one of those gift Toblerones that people bring back, you know, from airports. You know, would you try and eat the whole thing at once? No, you snap bits off. So you follow the things that you're most um, concerned about and then start linking them yourself or better still collaborate with someone who's also looking at a different area so you can bring together your knowledge. And, and Sue, what do, you, what do you think would have to start to change inside the, inside the design community um, to, to address that? So your point about that 80% of, um, of, I guess, kind of the actual impact of a product is, is designed in at a conceptual phase. I mean, what, what, what changes do you think need to occur and what changes are you starting to see, if any? Oh, that's a good point, because otherwise, you know, I do sound like, you know, the doom gloom queen, which is a badge, but I'd rather not wear it. Um, it's basically about um, materials, materials, to be, to be honest, um, the things you're going to make the garment from or the um, uh, we find, you know, in education, sometimes it's extremely difficult to get hold of, um, uh, I suppose, uh fabrics which have got an environmentally sound provenance and also i would add in on that point of as well human rights because we tend to think of fabric as the product but we don't think about the process and i think that's again across fashion in general um we think about the final thing we don't think about who made this I mean, uh, Fashion Revolution has uh, done incredibly well with their logo and their campaign, Who Made My Clothes? Um, but it again, it is something we tend to put away. There are strong parallels between fashion and food in regard to consumption, you know, because, you know, fast food, fast fashion are kind of gobbled by the consumer. So from that point of view, that fast sort of immediate, almost insatiable attitude they tend to take to clothes. So it's kind of, you know, in that sort of area. And can you use the, the model that I suppose food producers use and consumers use ethical ones to keep it local? Is, is that a model that can be think- applied to the fashion industry? It's one of several. You've got slow fashion, which is that, you know, it's a bit like the the uh, restaurant phase, you know, um, you know, uh, everything comes from 50 kilometers. That can mean a saving in carbon footprint, but it doesn't mean that the garments you're making, if they're nearby, are not um, uh, subject to, ex- you know, uh, the people are manufacturing it and not subject to expect exploitation. We found this, uh, most recently in, uh, the UK in the city of Leicester, which is a big production area relatively to the rest of the country. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that the human rights of the people who are working in that industry are being, um, followed. They, in fact, 
uh, may be following illegal practices, but they're still getting things done um, quite quickly at a price that's being demanded by a lot of fast fashion manufacturers. And to be honest, there's been quite a lot of... Um, Oh, I, I'm not going to say labels, but labels who are going like, who knew this was happening? And, you know, it's you kind of one is almost speechless because, you, you know, frankly, when you ask for a price at, on it for a certain garment, you know darn well that this is being achieved. Well, in, inappropriately, if, if not illegally. And where do you think the responsibility for that lies? I mean, I've often thought about kind of, you know, supply chains. There's there's this, um, I guess, kind of there's there's a relationship between one, the consumer and also the producer. So can you perhaps just take us through some of your thoughts, Sue, and some of the work that you've actually put into the book around around those two concepts? Well, in terms of um, the product, I mean, there are um, what's the word? There are similarities and decisions being made by both the customer and the designer. And it's the subject of my TED talk, um, I think Ethics of the New Black, in as much as it's about choices that the designer makes and is it also choices that the customer makes. And I, within the book and when I'm remembering, I prefer to say customer um, because I think the whole notion of consumption almost perpetuates this sort of almost wallowing in you know, uh, you know, uh, garments that we have, where in fact we should be a little bit more, you know, epicurean in our choices. We should be thinking very carefully. So, as a designer, when you're putting together a concept, you are uh, first of all, you're you obviously you've got a concept, as in, is it going to be inspired by, or does do you see a connection, and you're making your clothes or your collection relating to this that it's actually you know um you are using appropriate sourced matter you then think about um who are you designing for are you being ageist um are you being sexist are you exploiting women or worst uh children in the uh sort of conceptualization that you're doing um in terms of are you limiting it to a particular size that kind of thing. And that's just before you've really started um, thinking about your carbon footprint. So are the um, materials that you're using and the manufacture processes? Because people think it's all about the environment, you know, because it's made from hemp or something. But if a garment is badly made, even when it's made from hemp, these seams will, won't last. Um, it won't stand a lot of laundering, that kind of thing. So it's, yeah. a you know, two things two parts to this one and so but at the other end of the um uh, so basically the life cycle um analysis if you go right around the circle starting with concept and you come to the person who's manufact who's actually buying i beg your pardon um she or he's got to really look at what they are um intending to purchase and sometimes the prices are ridiculous for a reason and they're not all about exploitation but a goodly number are. And so you have to think to yourself, well, do you want to look great tonight? Um, or do you want to look great tonight and know for sure that this has been made ethically? Or are you happy to dance around your handbag in something that has meant, you know, two small girls haven't had enough money, you know, to educate their, their sister or their cousin? You know, so they're young. These young women are making for their family. We have a really lopsided view of why people in the developing world work. 
I mean, I think, you know, in the, um, in, in, and also, you know, basically in the developed world work, but that notion of it's not all about their personal pay packet. It's actually about the extended family pay packet. So these people aren't, you know, basically working for uh, money just, you know, to get makeup and clothes. They're actually working to feed and look after and maintain their extended family. So this is yeah. something you need to think about when you're shopping. This is, you know, are, you know, are the clothes you're buying, are they worn by other women? Is this, um, you know, a particular look? And so if you've got strong personal ethics, it seems bizarre to me that um, one would buy um, an inexpensive, poorly made potential, you know, area of exploitation thing. And and that is really, really interesting. So just to um, just quickly on that is... Can you just talk to us a little bit about that that notion, I guess, of the, you know, you're talking about that we don't often in the in the West, in particular, when we look at the, the developing world, we don't tend to look at, I guess, that there's there's a bigger picture to that piece. And do you think that's because we don't often look at the bigger picture of our own um, consumption? So becoming this custom, um, I guess, kind of conscious customer who's actually making more choices and kind of in your language is less like, a, I guess, a river of kind of product that's coming at you. I mean, do you think that part of our own kind of um, choices isn't necessarily kind of, you know, isn't necessarily informed by one, what we're actually buying, but it's a real lack of understanding of actually what goes into that garment to begin with? I think it is the latter. It's a lack of understanding. I, I, I believe strongly that people want to do to do good. I don't think people want to harm other people. Um, I think, though, we need to make more information available. I think we've got pioneer labels that are telling more things, but there is such a thing as greenwash and ethics wash. Drives me mad that everybody says it's ethically, it's ethical fashion. And, you know, obviously being an academic, I tend to say, how you know what because they 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 you know the, the following on is isn't really usually there if they're ethical they will be certified or they will be talking about specific things they're doing we tend to get ethics wash all sort of sparkly around the edges and it means very little eco-friendly what does that actually mean you know um so you know push back i think from my point of view i think in terms of a bit like food sometimes when you're eating you know, at your favorite fast foods place or uh, a good restaurant, you really don't want to be thinking too hard about um, what's going on in an abattoir. I mean, it's a lot easier, like myself, I'm vegetarian. But that does, I mean, the thing is, I wasn't born vegetarian. So um, it's a choice. So in terms of it, for me, it was a faith-based choice. That's a whole nother thing. Um, but in terms, because everybody tends to think it's, are you having a bit of a fad? You go, no, actually it's faith-based. <laughs> so it's like, no, I'm not doing this because I think it's cool. I'm doing it because I've had a bit of mental searching going on. But anyway, um, so I don't think we're mindful of, you know, practices in um, abattoirs. I think if we saw the small, um, I say small girl because I'm older and quite a large woman, so everybody's small to me. But in terms of you saw a young woman and you knew about her, how long she'd been working and what she was making, um, I think you one would be much more, um, what's the word, uh, caring of the clothes that she's made. You know, because realistically, I mean, uh, I, I don't think these women or men are making clothes badly on purpose. They're probably trying to do the best they can with what they've got. 
And so with that in mind, you know, can we be disrespectful of their clothes? Can we um, not find out whether or not they're pay- being paid um, a living wage? And that's, you know, by how calculated, you know, it's calculated. I think it's by uh, International Labour Organization. So it's the idea of what they can do with that sort of money. And people say, oh, it's the wage locally. Yeah, well, that can sometimes mean, you know, it's really, really not enough. So I think from that perspective, you know, we, we've got a lot of choices to make. And I know it's quite difficult. Um, and I think, you know, you do the best you can, but you sometimes have to try. I think one of the things we suffer from is there isn't a silver bullet on this. There isn't a like, I've done that. I don't have to worry about this young woman. Has she got the right shoes? You know, is she covered for medical concerns? You know, this kind of thing. Is she going to be in a false marriage? You don't have to worry about that because magic bullet has done it. There isn't that there. Um, you can um, look for certification, things like fair trade. You can look to see whether they get a good rating. Are they, you know, they're not in, on the scary news side of the cleans, clean clothes campaign who are doing amazing work. Um, but from that point of view, you, 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 it's quite a lot of effort to do to actually monitor all this. But I think occasionally you, it's about, I think personal change, although it's the easiest thing to do, it's the hardest because it's a bit like being on a diet. And I know about that, too. It's really difficult to hold it after a while, you know, particularly if something's out there tempting. But I think, you know, I think we are, to be frank, duty bound to keep trying. We owe Mm. it to these uh, women. We also owe it to the planet and the animals there within it, including ourselves. I mean, if there's there's so much to be learnt from COVID, bring it back to sort of now. But I mean, in it may be the raging middle class in um, the UK, but a huge interest now in in nature. Um, you know, wildlife wildlife programs are like cats. You know, like catnip. You know, like, wow, I've got to watch it. Um, whereas before it's like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. But there's Game of Thrones on the other side. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, we haven't got enough drama. But the reality is people want to know it's going on and still things are happening and people are marveling at it. And I'm hoping, frankly, that's one of the, t- well, two takeaways from COVID, marveling and enjoying and respecting and revering nature. And the other one is realizing how much other people want to help you. You know, want to be kind. I mean, I didn't know my neighbor. I knew my actual next door neighbor on one side and the other neighbor a bit. Now I know um, more neighbors and waving to everybody else who's got a pulse. So from that point of view, um, it may have happened in Australia all the time anyway, not so much in the UK. So there are lots of, you know, strong takeaways about this. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. On the note of fast fashion, I suppose, abattoirs 
if it is said, if abattoirs had glass windows, everyone would be a vegetarian. Maybe if factories had glass windows, I don't know if the the same applies. Maybe if there was a bit more transparency, um, people would make a lot better decisions as a consumer or a customer. But what have you seen over a historical perspective driving significant positive change within the industry, in homes and in production houses? I think that's a good point because, um, again, you know, it, um, it does take me an opportunity or give me an opportunity, I beg your pardon, to to move away from the doom and gloom. It has changed. You know, um, frankly, I wouldn't be interested in this if it wasn't changed changing um in terms of uh, from my own personal experience starting off um starting looking at ethics um it it was nebulous it was um you know how can fashion have ethics you know it's sort of uh, you know it's taking you uh, taking you above yourself somehow and i went you know like a you know traditional teacher looked at the um dictionary and looked up medical ethics and basically took out the word medical and I put in fashion on all of them. And I'm thinking, haven't we got enough issues within our industry to warrant having fashion ethics? And this is what I still, you know, hold to. I think in terms of um, people started talking about sustainability um, and people uh, with the industry, you know, confused it because they felt that sustainable meant carrying on. Uh, but they thought the carrying on bit was actually about carrying on the fashion industry as it was. Uh, we, um, but the reality is sustainability within fashion and the idea of sustaining the planet for the future and future generations and preferably in a better um, condition that it is. And so you're seeing, seeing um, labels buying into it um, or leading from it um, for all sorts of reasons. Quite often the outdoor gear um, aspect of the market, um, people who are in, in the country, in the environment, um, training for, you know, uh, running, um, climbing things, surfing, it's very outdoors, not very me. But um, they were starting to look at their game because people who are in the um, sort of more extreme climbing things, buying quite expensive products, were also keen to maintain it. So you have someone who's like a mountain climber, like uh, I've got to get this pronunciation right, Yvon Chounard from um, Pat- Patagonia. Um, you have people like that trying to make a difference, looking um, to change their way. And for a long time, uh, Patagonia have been a very interesting label to watch because they're privately owned so they can say, you know, do as they wish. So they can lead in a quite a radical manner. And when they spot a problem that they've been perpetuating, they change it and let people know they've changed it. So I think this idea of we were born without blemish, as in a label, um, is quite hard to believe, uh, whereas I think it's a more perhaps a reassuring, maybe not truthful, but I think it is truthful, um, way of presenting yourself like uh, we've kind of worked out we weren't doing very well here and we've changed it. And, you know, we, we, we're grateful for um, your response. So they're actually engaging with the customer about how, um, you know, what they, they do to work. There's another small label in the UK, originally starting in Japan, called People Tree, and they work with communities. And one of their areas of interest to me as an academic, hence I put them in my book, was the fact that they return to places um, 
um, and establish a long-term relationship. Traditionally, fashion manufacture, when it's off-sea, offshores, shore rather, was sort of started big style in the 80s been around before then, but very much so in the 80s. And it was a, very much like a flock of carrion. And I'm sorry about that, but it was. And so they would go wherever the inexpensive was and they follow the inexpensive labor fees. So what tends to happen if things got expensive, the production would move somewhere else. They would place their orders somewhere else. So where someone like People Tree, for example, when um, uh, some of the factories or the groups they work with um, were flooded, um, you know, developing country quite often has the worst of the environmental emergency impact. Um, they stayed with that group and they um, helped them reestablish and they wrote to all their customers or their their um, consumers, whatever, um, and said, you're going to have to wait for the deliveries. We are helping this, this uh, company out. Whereas correspondingly, we have the kind of direct opposite um, when during uh, COVID and we're talking about still now, um, a lot of the big labels pulled out and cancelled their orders. Now, it's a financial institution. I understand that. However, a lot of the um, manufacturing companies overseas in developing countries bore the brunt. So it was um, very close to Eid. They were making their people redundant. They weren't able to give them the Eid bonus. So the workers, some of them were walking home. And a lot of them are um, uh, economic migrants. So they've come from, say, one end of India to another where the manufacturing is. And so they're without money and also without the bonus, they have to walk home. You know, uh, it's... It, it, you know, and still we want to have a, you know, demonte covered boob tube. You know, I, I, you know, I can't work it out. So um, <laughs> this, this is still carried on. And if you look online, you know, through your favorite social media, um, if you look into some of the big labels, and also the NGOs that follow them, um, they are still waiting to be paid in places. And sometimes the larger companies are going back to the manufacturers and saying, could they have a discount? Uh, and so from that perspective, all of a sudden, the companies, again, are supposed to um, gather up all these unemployed people and get slop them, you know, you know, straight back into manufacture. I mean, again, one uh, it's uh, what's the word? It's not a, a complete indicator, but it's a signpost. There was one particular uh, manufacturer owner in uh, the developing world. He was posting on LinkedIn. And um, he, he took photographs of himself crying because, you know, he was um, at his wit's end of how to um, keep going when people weren't paying. And he named the labels. Jeez, and geez. so on that note, so do you feel like the power is with the consumer? Like who's driving the change? Who has been driving the change? And where does the change get generated from? You're saying the designer really makes a difference around how they design the garment, but who obviously the designer isn't just coming from their head. There's constraints around that designer. Where do you think pressure can be put on the people making the decisions to give the brief to the designer? I think the, um, it's, it's, 
across the board, unfortunately, it's not sort of simple, like quick point at them. Um, the consumer definitely does, without doubt. Ask questions. I mean, I'm not original in saying that. Um, ask questions. Where was this made? What are the human rights? What badges? What accreditation have you had? How many times are you, is this company audited overseas and by whom? The other thing is um, it is a collaboration. And about mm, maybe through four years ago, I was at a, um, a presentation by somebody in a large, very well-known company who was head of sustainability. And then she, she spoke about collaboration, not a term that is very novel to the English language, but at that point within fashion, it totally was. So it was almost like she'd said an expletive. I sort of sat up in my chair and she, talking about collaboration, because usually it's all about IP, into, you know, intellectual property, don't tell them, don't tell them. Um, and all of a sudden it's about collaboration. And I think it is about collaboration. I mean, fashion's always trying to offer a point of difference. For In the short term, sustainability will be a point of difference. Ethical behaviour will be a point of difference. But I think in the long term, it will be a necessity. Um, so I think buyers have to be mindful. Um, I had a former student phone me when I was working in Australia saying, I mean, I'm having trouble here. My large Australian label um, is telling me to go back and ask for this local company within um, Melbourne in Australia to cut their prices again. And she said, I already know that they're, you know, um, down to the last, you know, cent sort of thing. And I, you know, I said, well, there's nothing you can do now, but, you know, bear this in mind and take it on to your next position. And she's in a reasonably, you know, high position now in a company again within um, Melbourne and making a difference. So from that point of view, she knows the price of things. She knows what is the um, how far you can ask people to go. And I think we all have to be thinking about that. The suppliers, I think there um, the buyers, I think um, people also. I mean, we've talked about the big purchase thing, you know, and again, it's very much um, the focus we have. But also it's the how long do you keep wearing it? How do you wash it? Um, how you go, what is the next life for that garment? It is the sort of reincarnation, I think I refer to it in, in my book, in regard to what's its next life. And I'm loath to make the designer king or queen and of everything, but the reality is another thing you can actually decide in that man, in that design process, and later on will we decide the manufacturers how long that garment can last for. Can you design not one life, as in you know, a great coat or super um, pair of trousers. But more importantly, what will its next life be? And, you know, I'm not the only one talking about this, but, you know, there are all sorts we can gain from looking at make, do and mend during the Second World War. Um, there are lots of interesting artists and uh, groups getting together around mending, how that might go. And there's cultural backgrounds. There's some really exciting men mending done um, out of Japan, Japan traditionally. So we, there are lots of things we can lean on. There is a great deal of work being done by really, you know, clever and, you know, driven people in a good way. So from that perspective, it isn't without hope. But I, I think it's also it is without full engagement. And really, that's what I'd I'd hope for the future. 
And and Sue, I mean, that last question is, I mean, what what is what is that future in your mind? So you talk about kind of the signposts that, that you were mentioning before that point us in a certain direction. I mean, if you could if you could create the future of of fashion, you could actually kind of cast not just a magic wand, but I think kind of um, understanding that this is a change that we all can actually enact through our purchase decisions. I mean, what what do you think it it could look like, and what would you hope it will look like? Well, I was going to say dress is made from chocolate, but that's just personal. <laughs> a little bit impractical down here on some days. Yeah, as you know. <laughs> Could be fun. But, no, but seriously, as they say, my area of interest at the moment and has been for uh, nearly two years, and I'm putting, to, I'm basically polishing a paper, as they say, um, is relation about inclusion. Um, one of the reasons, one of the strange and exotic things I did at my PhD was compare the sort of ethics um, of fashion and the and sustainability specifically, um, and the tenants from Buddhism, socially engaged Buddhism. And it came from personal, um, I'm a Buddhist of sorts. And um, I, from doing the sort of conversion, sort of soft conversion, like in New Zealand, um, I carried on through, still do. But the thing I found that I was less um, worried by other uh, religions, in fact, curious. So um, I, you know, go to all sorts of things from different different faith base. But I also realised that we are not, strangely enough, the, um, I suppose, the casket of all knowledge in relation to sustainability. Looking around the sustainable table, inverted commas, um, I saw there weren't many faces that weren't from a European background or an American background. We are not including people at the table. And so my area of interest is faith-based design most currently. So I was looking and I'm still looking at how faiths contribute to sustainability. Most recently, I've been looking at um, Islam, but you can look and I've written about it um, uh, using, in fact, an Australian, um, one amongst other things, an Australian um, label that makes the bikini. Um, so I'm thinking around the notion of inclusion. We're not going to make a difference to this planet unless we have everybody at the table. So when we have a lot of fashion um, researchers, academics, industries, we don't always have very many um, you know, people from different backgrounds, uh, BAME for a quick way of saying it. So, you know, I find it rather intolerant um, to imagine that we've got the solution. I think it's deeply patronising to, you know, rock up in another country and explain how everything is going to be a lot better when we thought it through. And yes, we're allowed to have, um, and we should have, ideas, but we have to have the other voice, and we're really not hearing other voices in this debate. Thank you for listening to BAU Business As Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.